Right. At this time, I'd like to dismiss the children to Children's Church. If you can follow Miss Sarah back there, that'd be fantastic. Uh, that was a great video. And uh, also, uh, if you were here last week, didn't you enjoy Jonathan? Wasn't that a great message? I mean, seriously. It was almost as if he was saying, Ernest, you better bring your A game. So I appreciate that very much. And I mean, seriously, Jonathan's a just fantastic person, good teacher. We love him so much. Um, I, I didn't know this until recently. I'm going to ask if you knew this because maybe you knew something I didn't know. Did you know that when the Titanic hit the iceberg, there were two other ships in the area? How many of y'all... How many of y'all knew that? I, I, had, I didn't know that un, until just uh, about a week ago. A lot of people in the first service, they did this. Uh, one of the ships that was in the area was the Californian. And uh, the, I, it, it, I know it's a bad name for a ship, but that's what its name was. It was the, it was the Californian. And uh, they were only 20 miles away. They were very close. Unfortunately, 20 minutes. 10 minutes, they were 20 miles away, 10 minutes before the Titanic hit the iceberg that caused it to sink, the Californian turned off its radios for some reason. Now, the Californian was close enough to see the Titanic, and people on the, the Californian and crew members on the Californian, they saw flares going up and rockets. I don't exactly know what that means, but they saw a commotion happening from the Titanic. They also later saw all the lights go off on the Titanic. They saw it just go completely dark, which is unusual. But nobody thought to turn the radio back on and investigate and see what was going on over there, even though they saw flares and rockets and the lights go out. They, they didn't really think, they couldn't have imagined that the ship was sinking and they didn't picture the hundreds upon hundreds of people who were in the water dying of hypothermia and drowning. And it's a chilling thought because whoever was on the Californian, the crew members, the guests, they had to spend the rest of their lives with this realization. We saw but we did not respond to what we saw. Can you imagine living with that? Now, there was another boat, uh, another ship, 58 miles away, nearly three times further away. It was the Carpathia. And the Carpathia had its radio equipment on. And so when the distress signal went out from the Titanic, the Carpathia immediately responded. In fact, they responded with all engines full steam ahead, and they moved as quickly as they could to the, the Titanic, even though it was in the, in the night. And they were navigating around uh, icebergs. They didn't care. They got there as fast as they could, but it took them three and a half hours to get there. So, of course, they weren't able to respond quickly enough to the people who were in the water who died and, and drowned. But they were at least able to rescue the that was 705 souls that were in the different life rafts. Now, those contrasting pictures are kind of convicting, especially when you recognize that... Jesus Christ, who was sent by the Father into this world for the salvation of the world, that same Son has sent you and me into the world. And I just kind of wonder, when it's all said and done at the end of our days, 
Will we look back on our days and think, you know, I saw, but I didn't respond. Because unless you are completely blind, you recognize we are in a world that is kind of going down. And you recognize children and neighbors and family members and society as a whole. You know some people and it looks like they are just struggling and about to drown if they haven't already. And I just kind of wonder at the end of my days, am I going to be thinking, I saw, but I didn't respond. Kind of a convicting thought. Jesus puts it like this to you and me when he sends us out on mission. Let's go ahead and stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. This is John chapter 17, and it's verses 14 through 19. Jesus here is actually praying to the Father. He's about to die for the sanctification of many to make us holy, acceptable to God, set apart for divine purposes. And he's praying for his disciples, and here's what he prays. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And you sent me into the world, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For I, for them I sanctify myself, uh, that they too may be truly sanctified. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. May God bless the reading of his word, may be seated. Now obviously, um, obviously Jesus wants us to go into the world, but as we go into the world, he wants us to not be of the world, not be worldly. What does that exactly mean? Well, I want us to think about the language of in the world, but not of the world, because as we think about that language, it will help us to better understand the particular specific nature of our sentness, okay? Now, when you talk about the word world in the Bible, like other words, it's sort of depending on the context. It can mean different things in different places, actually wildly different things. Sometimes the word world in the Bible just has to do with the good creation that God made, and in particular, the human beings, the crowning act of the creation of God when he made the world. And you see this pretty plainly over in John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the world. God loves all the people of the world. It was just eight days ago, a week ago Saturday, um, that I was at a, a service for Melba Daring. That's uh, Roxanne's mom. It was really a sweet service. It really was uh, over at Christ Lutheran. And uh, they sang a song. It's a familiar song, but it was a kind of a different rendition. And this is singing at a, at a memorial service. It was Jesus Loves Me, but here, here's how they sang it. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Stranger friend and neighbor too. God loves them as God loves you. Jesus loves the little children of the world. And I like that little change because whenever in the past it say red and yellow, black and white, you know, being a Native American, I would always take offense at the 
the red part. Uh, but anyways, we, we changed that up and, and we sang it, you know, uh, stranger, friend, and neighbor too. God loves them as God loves you. It was really, it was sweet. And then the next line was also sweet and different, a little bit of a twist. Uh, Melba. Melba loves the little children, all the children of the world. Red. I don't know. That's, that's the old fallen, terrible, politically incorrect Baptist thing. <laughs> Stranger friend and neighbor too. God loves them as God loves you. Melba loves the little children of the world. And I, I like that for two reasons. One, um, you know, God's not a God of the dead, but the living. Melba just changed residences. Okay. But the other thing that was so interesting is, you know, as Jesus goes, so too we go. If Jesus loves, we love. As Jesus goes, we go. That's just the way it works out. And so there's the very positive use of the word world. Jesus has sent us into the world the same way he was sent into the world, to the, to the people for whom Jesus died. That's, that's the positive thing. But on the negative side, the word world can be used in an entirely different way. The word world sometimes refers to that sphere or that area, that arena where God's will is not being done, where darkness reigns rather than God, where sin rules as opposed to Jesus. And so in that sense, when you're talking about being of the world, you recognize, hey, we can't say, well, those of us inside the church or in the body of Christ that we're, we're, we're over here and then there are the people of the world over here. You can't really say that because if the world is that sphere or that arena of darkness where sometimes sin reigns or darkness reigns as opposed to God, well, then you recognize people are people no matter why, where you find them, in the church or outside of the church, because we all need to be cleansed of the world. Sometimes we convolute or overlap, confuse these words, and we say, well, there's the church over here, and then there's the world over here. Well, we're sent into the world as messengers of Jesus for the salvation of the world, but at the same time, we've got to be very, very cautious and very, very humble about this because the reality is you have worldliness in you, and I have worldliness in me, just like everybody's got worldliness in them, and we all need to be cleansed of this. And that's why Jesus prays that they be sanctified by the word and, and by the truth. And his word is truth because all people are in process. All of us are being cleansed. All of us need sanctification. So we better be careful not to get up on our high horse and think, well, if we're on one side of the wall, we're okay, but not on the other side so much. But let me put it to you like this. I heard a story about a man who planted a garden and he was thrilled when the little shoots came up out of the garden and then he saw that they began to produce the, the produce, the, you know, the, the tomatoes and the carrots and all the rest. But he noticed not too long after the little shoots started coming up that there were rodents and rabbits and they were starting to eat at the different plants. So the guy said, okay, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to put a fence around the garden. So he put a fence around the garden, left it alone for a while, came back a week or two later, and he discovered that he still had a vermin problem. So he built another fence. Left, came back, saw the same thing, built another fence, then another fence. Finally, he figured out, well, I guess 
they can get through the fence or climb over the fence or maybe they dig under the fence. And so I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to build a concrete wall just straight up and down and make it very high and, and dig the foundation deep into the earth. And so he built this massive concrete and brick wall. Left the garden alone for two or three weeks, came back, and the garden was a complete disaster. The ground was cracked. The plants were all but dead. There were weeds everywhere because he had not been tending to his own garden. On top of all of this, he discovered, worst of all, that some of the rodents and some of the rabbits were inside the fence. Now, the the parable is this. Sometimes as Christians, we get to thinking, well, there's like this little magic wall around the castle. And and we're in here and everything's going to be okay. And the, the problem is the same rodents, the same vermin have to be dealt with in your life. As, it, as well as in the lives of anybody else. And the problem when you start focusing on the walls that you build and the rules and the structures that you create, you start thinking, well, these structures and these rules and these boundaries are going to keep me safe morally or relationally or they're going to keep me safe in terms of my time management and all the rest. And actually that can contribute to the problem worsening because you've, for some reason, lost sight of the reality that people are people no matter where you are and that you need sanctification just as much as anybody else needs sanctification. And that's why Jesus prays, sanctify them, because he knows the disciples he's dealing with. He's been walking around with them for three years and he recognizes these guys need help. I'm sending them into the world, but I'm going to be praying for them that they not be of the world. Now, when I was growing up, and I know, I, I think I've shared this before. When I was growing up in a Baptist church, it's a very typical kind of a, you know, flat-footed, conservative Baptist church. When I was growing up, we kind of had some weird ways of navigating the in the world but not of the world thing. And, and part of that is evidenced in the, the way that we sort of wrestled with or drew boundaries in ways that the Bible didn't necessarily, but we were trying to do our best. And the, for example... When I was in school, we had this thing called P.E. Do we still have P.E. like in middle school? I don't know. But whether it was elementary school or middle school, we had P.E. And sometimes there'd be kickball and sometimes we'd be playing basketball. And then we had this these periods where we would do social dancing. How how many of y'all went, when you were in P.E., you had these social dancing things where you, all right. And it was very necessary because back in the day, the way it was supposed to be is the guy had to like swallow his pride and, you know, bow up and walk across the room in front of everybody, including all the girls that were giggling and ask the girl if she would come out and start dancing. And then they would turn on, you know, the boom box and it was staying alive with the Bee Gees. And, uh, you know, all the, all the fifth grade and sixth grade kids were trying to do this while not looking like they were just doing this. And... And, and, you know, you had to learn kind of the social stuff and how to dance and all the rest. But the, the reality is I grew up in a Baptist church. and About half the Baptists at the time were like, I don't know so much about the dancing. And my parents were kind of normal-ish. And they would say, okay, you know, maybe it's not so good, but just go have fun. You know, whatever. We're going to close our eyes. And, uh, and you know, they grew up in Oklahoma. They, they you know, they, they, you know they were cool, whatever. But I'm just saying... For some people, in some circles, dancing was the sin that helped define sin. In other words, the reason drinking is a sin is it can lead to dancing. And the reason smoking marijuana is a sin is it could lead to dancing. And the 
reason, you know, premarital relations are a sin is that could lead to dancing. And, and so we just kind of had this thing where if you had kids that were in school, you, you had the opportunity where you could sign a note because schools respected the parents and you'd sign a note and saying, my kids excuse for religious purposes from, you know, doing this to staying alive. And so some of us would sit over, you know, on the sidewall, and then the others who were really goofy would look at the ones who were on the sidewall like they were kind of weird. But those of us who were sitting on the side could console ourselves by saying, well, Jesus said the world would hate us, you know, because we just we want to be in the world but not of the world. And what that means is just kind of on occasion trying to have as little as you possibly can have to do with the world. And sometimes you're just going to look weird. And the and I'm not trying to make light or too simple of the different gray areas, okay? There's some dancing I would do. It would it still ought to be a sin because nobody wants to watch me dance. But so I'm not trying to oversimplify. All I'm trying to say is, look, there was a kind of a fundamental ground note belief, which was, well, if we can't be so radically loving. And so self-sacrificially others-oriented in our service that it makes the rest of the world wonder, how is this person so like Jesus? If we can't do that, then at least we can be weird enough to be persecuted. I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind, okay? In, in fact, I know that that sort of thing is not really what Jesus had in mind because here again is his prayer. Let's go back to this. He says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Why would Jesus pray for protection from the evil one? Because he sent us into the world. And that's where we're supposed to be is in the world. But when you're fully engaged with the world, you need extra protection from the evil one. And you need the sanctifying work of Jesus Christ because it's a whole lot easier to be holy when you live in your Christian bubble, in your Christian cocoon, in your Christian ghetto with your Christian friends only reading Christian literature and only seeing Christian movies and and just kind of keeping your distance from the rest of the world. On occasion, is it a right thing to back off? And do you need to pay attention to the friends you have? Yes. But Jesus' mindset was, I'm sending you into the world as the Father sent me into the world. And when the Father sent Jesus into the world, he sent him to touch the lives of a world gone wrong. That's why I pray, sanctify them, make them holy, make them so immersed in my love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, courage, and all the rest. Make them so immersed in who I am that they'll be able to make an impact on the world around them. And so Jesus, again, he prays this prayer. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. We are not here for us. I know a lot of times we say, okay, it's not all about you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not about you. It's not about me. But you know what? It's not really about us either. We put it to you like this. I think this will stick with you because it kind of stuck with me when I heard it before. Jesus did not create a church and give it a mission. 
Jesus had a mission and gave it a church. That is to say, the mission is bigger than the church. And in fact, I would even say that if the church isn't living on mission, then the church isn't a church because the church is a servant to the mission. And this even sounds a little bit weird. I, I hope this doesn't come across as blasphemous because I don't mean it in this way. But the mission was so big that the father sent the son so as to fulfill the mission. In a certain sense, I don't take this ontologically or too seriously, but the mission was so big that you might even say it was big enough to demand Jesus. Jesus, second person of the Trinity. And yet Jesus had to live for that mission of reaching the world because it was the Father's will and the Father's heart and Father's love. And if the mission was so big that it demanded the full allegiance of Jesus, do you think, do I think, that somehow the mission isn't big enough to captivate captivate our imaginations or demand the full of our devotion. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not even about us. It's the mission. And, and of course, Jesus is going to send us on mission. You know why? Because Jesus was leaving. He came for three years. He did what he did, and then he was leaving. But did that mean that the mission would stop? Well, no. Jesus is still on mission. It's just that the mission continues on through the body of Christ. Just as the Father sent the Son, so the Son sends you and me. Because in a very real sense, with Jesus as our head, we are the hands and the feet of Jesus in this world, still on the mission that captivated his attention, that demanded the devotion of his life to the point of even dying on the death, dying the death of, of, of the Savior of this world, dying the death on the cross. So now as Jesus sends us out on mission, you say, well, what does that look like? When Jesus sends us out, what does that look like specifically? Well, I want to give you three images because the mission can kind of take different shapes, okay? Let's not just lump everything together too simplistically. But Jesus does give three images when he sends people out on mission that I think ought to stick with us. The first is this. You go over to the book of Matthew, and he says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. He also talks about snakes, and he also talks about doves. But the first image is of, of the sheep. I'm sending you out like sheep. Now, that's kind of depressing. It's surprising. You know why? Because if I'm going to name a sports team, it's going to be the Bears or the Lions or the Tigers or the Raptors or the Badgers or the Bobcats or the Diamondbacks or the Eagles. Or so. Nobody names their sports team the Sheep. You go to, you know, you go down to Pee Wee League. They don't even name like the little bitty baby leagues the Sheep. You know why? Because sheep get slaughtered. They get torn up. And Jesus says, not only am I, am I sending you out as sheep, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. Go team! Like, what? That mean, really, that's terrible. What is Jesus communicating? Well, at the very least, here's what he's communicating. You know, hey, you might want to go out with a little humility. Uh, because you're sheep. And maybe we need to re-identify what it means to be heroic in ministry or successful in ministry. Jesus got slaughtered. Well, as the Savior goes, so to the followers. Jesus puts it like this later on in Matthew chapter 10. He says, be on your guard. They will hand you over to the local councils. 
and flog you in their synagogues. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me. So, you know, by the way, if you speak or you write or you're responding to some comments on Twitter or whatever the case is, don't be surprised if you get negative pushback. I mean, in fact, if you never get negative pushback from anybody, I doubt very seriously that you're communicating in any uh, appropriate way the fullness of the gospel. You, Jesus said, you're, you're, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. It's, it's going to hurt. You're going to get shredded. Be prepared for the sacrifice. In fact, sacrifice for the person who's sent, on, sent out on mission is standard. It ought to be the daily practice. This is not the exception to the rule that sometimes you lose. You need to go out with the attitude of, I am going to sacrificially live on mission. And sometimes it's going to hurt. That's the promise. But we are sheep, and so how are we going to succeed? Well, the next thing he says is that he's, he wants us to be like snakes. Be as wise as serpents, he says. Shrewd as snakes. I love this, be shrewd as snakes, because Jesus sometimes gets perceived as the character who's a little bit head in the clouds, and he's just sort of floating above the realities of humanity and the difficulties of life. And No, no, no. Jesus was strategic, and he maximized opportunities. He's saying, you've got to be thinking about how can you make the most of whatever the opportunities that are that are given you. So think strategically about how you're going to invest your life so as to make the biggest difference that you possibly can. Don't be foolish. Now, when it comes to investing appropriately as someone who's been sent on mission, there are five basic questions that I think we need to ask. The first is, okay, what, what's my passion? Generally, you need to run with your passion. What do you get excited about? Well, hang there. Number two, what are your gifts? God's given you gifts, a particular shape, a supernatural ability even, so as to execute the ministry. Look at your, look at your passion. Look at your gifts. Look also at your hurts because you've never had a hurt that God wants to let go to waste. If you've got some hurts in your life, that's a really good point of contact with other people who are hurting in a similar manner. And maybe these are the things that can motivate you and enable you to stick to other people in ways that other people could not. So you look at all of that, and then on top of this, you look at your partners. That is to say, do you have partners in ministry? Do you have some people that, that are with you, people that financially support or in gift support or just within terms of encouragement or they're, they're praying for you? When Jesus sent out the disciples on mission, he commonly would send them out two by two. Part of the reason for that is because it took the testimony of two in order for it to be a valid testimony, but part of it is everybody needs the encouragement and the support. And prayer support counts because you notice that Jesus here is praying for the disciples. That's part of his ministry. He prays for the disciples. He prays for the disciples that are yet to come through the disciples. And he continues to sit at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. The Holy Spirit also is interceding on our behalf of the groanings that no mouth can utter, the Bible tells us. Prayer is a legitimate partnership. I, uh, I came across this not too long ago. This was... Uh, James Fraser, in uh, 1908, James Fraser was a missionary to China. He gave up a, a successful career and all the rest in order to go to China. When he got to China, he did ministry at the foothills of the Himalayas. And those that were up in the Himalayas, he ministered to also. But in the wintertime, he couldn't get up there because the snow prohibited travel. So it might take him three to five days to get up there in the, in the wintertime where it only take him hours before. So in the winter season, and this is how missionaries would do it, he would go from town to town, win converts, plant churches, go back and make disciples, 
But in the winter season, there were these people that he just couldn't get back to. And he almost got resentful toward God, like, God, you're prohibiting me from going back and making disciples. What's going on? But he then came to a a peaceful moment and he thought, okay, I'm going to minister to the ones down in the lowlands where I can get to. But the ones that are up higher where I can't get to, I'm going to spend the amount of prayer just praying for them that I would have spent just traveling and ministering the word. So after the winter season was over, he goes back to the people up in the highlands and, and he comes to find out that the people up in the highlands that he hadn't had contact with for months actually grew more than the people that he discipled to directly because he'd been praying for them and they'd been reading the Bibles and they'd been praying because he spent the same amount of time just simply praying for them as he, as he would if he had just gone up there and just kind of preached the word and did ministry in a normal way. There, these were his observations after that experience. He said, if I were to think after the manner of men, it would be an- I would be anxious about my Lisu converts. Those are the people at the, in the mountains. Afraid for their falling back into demon worship. But God is enabling me to cast all my care upon him. I am not anxious, not nervous. If I hugged my care to myself instead of casting it upon him, I should never have persevered in the work so long. Perhaps never even started it. But if it has been begun in him, it must be continued in him. Listen, if God responds powerfully to the prayers of Jesus, that's why he thinks it's worth while to pray and continue to intercede, well, he's going to respond to your prayers and my prayers. And I, I, I've told y'all this before, I think, that years and years ago, I had a grandmother, Granny Jones, my dad's mom, and she prayed for me every day. In fact, it was a little bit embarrassing because in her house in Oklahoma, there was a room and I most of the pictures on the wall in this room, which was her prayer room, they were pictures of me because I was her favorite of all the many grandkids. Uh, no, that's not actually it. But she knew I was a, a minister, and, and so she prayed for me, like, literally every day. And it may have just been a psychological thing, I don't know, or maybe there was something, you know, in the ether, spiritual connection. But when she died, I noticed the loss. Some of you, you know when you're getting prayed for. I don't know how else to, to explain it. There's power in prayer. Uh, I recently, really a few years ago, kind of got another Granny Jones in some respects. Um, another lady in our church, senior adult, Bonnie's aunt. How many of y'all remember Bonnie's aunt? She, she has recently, just last week, she moved to California. She, she'd fallen one too many times. Her son came and got her, and she just got out there like Tuesday evening. And Bonnie's aunt prays for me every day. And I feel it and I notice it. Do you have those partners? Do you have people you can go to and say, can you pray for me? Can you help me? Can you support me? You think about that as one of your strategic um, considerations for what is it that you're going to do. And then number five, in addition to all of this, you just look at the world's need. Yeah, you do look at your gifts and your talents and your hurts and your partners, but you also notice what is it that the world needs then you dig in there and you move forward. Some of you are aware of John Murphy. He's the president of Reasons to Believe. He's been a partner with this church and Reasons to Believe for a long time. And I just, you can go through there and you go, okay, what, what's his ability? Well, in terms of his, his passions, he's got a passion for uh, Christian apologetics and theology and science. 
uh, what are his gifts? He does have a speaking ability, although he says he's very, very nervous, and so he's got a partner in me because every time he gets up to talk, I'm praying for him. Uh, in addition to all of this, you just kind of look out, and you see well, there's, there's a need in the world for people to know you can become a Christian without committing intellectual suicide in the, in the process. And as far as his scars or hurts, I'm not exactly sure. He was a preacher's kid, so I'm sure there were tons, okay? But I haven't done the psychoanalysis. Then, then uh, there's a third metaphor here, okay? I'm sending out a sheep among wolves, be shrewd or as wise as serpents. And then, number three, be innocent as doves. When you go out in ministry, it's not just what you do and, and uh, the things that you offer that you take with you. It, it's, it's who you are. Be as innocent as doves. Motivation matters. Purity matters. Let me take you back to another passage that really hammers on purity in terms of us being sent. Jesus said, I'm, I'm, I'm sending you out in the world. You're the salt of the earth and you're the light of the world. When he talks about salts in particular, he says, if the salt loses its saltiness, if it becomes impure, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You, I think there's lots of different interpretations here, but one of them is, look, if you get, if it, if the salt gets dirty, you can't put salt and dirty or impure salt in food. It's, you, you just, it, it's no good anymore. You, you can't use it. Pure. You've got to be salty. There has to be an integrity there. And it's not about you. It's about w- where you're applied. Thinking about salt. Is the salt, when Jesus says you're the salt of the earth, does that mean that we're supposed to give flavor to the world? Well, maybe. Does that mean we're the preservative in the world? Well, maybe. But whether you're talking about the preservative or the flavor... Salt doesn't exist for itself. Nobody picks up a bowl of salt and just starts eating the salt. Unless it's a youth group challenge. But that doesn't count, okay? That stuff doesn't count. Same thing as cinnamon. That's just evil. Anyways, I digress. The salt isn't for the salt. It's for the food. Light, same thing. Light doesn't call attention to itself. You walk into a room. The first thing you look at is not, you know, up at the lights. The first thing you see is everything that the lights cast upon whether it's the painting on the wall or the furniture in the room, the light doesn't exist for the light. It exists for the objects in the room. This is you and me. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not even about us. It's about the world into which we've been sent. But you can't be effective in the world if there's the loss of integrity. If the light becomes darkness, if it's put under the bushel, it can't do anything. The salt becomes loses its saltiness. It's not good for anything anymore. This is why Jesus sanctifies you and me because we need it. Because there's a worldliness in you and there's a worldliness in me. You say, well, what do you mean? What do you mean by worldliness? Well, I could give you lots of examples, but here is one primary example of worldliness. The biggest example of worldliness in the church is the resistance to the call of Jesus to go into the world. I know Jesus sent me. He wants me to talk to my brother and my sister, this co-worker. I know he needs me to get involved in this ministry. I know I need to become faithful to God in terms of my financial contributions or my time commitments. But I just don't want to do it. I don't want to take those risks. You know what that is? That's worldliness. Yeah, it's not us in here and them out there when it comes to the issues. We've all got the issues We've all got the problems from which we need cleansing. 
But you've also been given the truth of Jesus Christ. You've been given his word and it does sanctify you. Jesus has absolutely every right to demand thorough obedience of you and of me. I was uh, visiting with a lady after the first service. I'm going to close on this. And, and she said, you know, I had, a, I had somebody ask me. And it made me really uncomfortable. I didn't know what to say. And, and this person was not a Christian. And she said, why is it that you Christians are like, you know, all uptight about your sexual boundaries, whether it be your partners or homosexuality or getting married first and all that stuff? And she said, how do I respond to that? And, and, and I, I think this is a good response. It's not the only response, and it may not satisfy everybody. But my response to those kinds of questions is this. Listen, if you're not a Christian, you're, you're, you're in a whole other place. But when you're a believer, here's what you know. Jesus did everything for me. He gave up everything for me. And, and now that I'm a Christian and I belong to him... Whatever he says goes. There is nothing that Jesus could ever ask of me as a follower that is too much. And Jesus isn't sending you into the world as, as sheep among wolves, not having been slaughtered in the worst of ways. He doesn't send you out on mission until after he's gone out on mission. There is nothing that Jesus ever asks you to do that he hasn't done first for you. Let's bow forward to prayer. Lord, uh, it is a challenging word, but you are not the cosmic hypocrite. And it's not just that you led by example as a Savior. You are the personal Savior to us. And... And that makes a difference. And so, Lord, if the mission were so big that you had to submit yourself to it because it was the will of the Father, how much more so those of us who have been saved by you who lived on mission for us. You didn't create a church and give it a mission. There was a mission and you gave it a church because the church is the body of Christ and you gave yourself to the mission wholeheartedly without reservation. May this realization change us and may it make us open to wholehearted obedience, to taking risks, to figuring out what it is that we should do in particular. And also, Lord, may it keep us open to being, you know, radically creative as a church with regards to what it is that we can do to be on mission. Because if as a church we are not on mission, then we're not a church. Show us the adjustments that we need to make individually and corporately and grant us the appropriate boldness that comes from the grandness of the mission and the grandness of the Savior who fulfilled his. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.